This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Tony Black, back at last from my extended trip to Risa uh, via Casperia Prime for a little bit of extra sun, sea and, well, let's not talk about that. Uh, and with me <laughs> is uh, my co-host who has been uh, marvellously in my stead for quite a while now. It's uh, Duncan Barrett. How are you, Duncan? It's nice to speak to you again. I know. It's, it's good to talk to you. I was getting worried about you, Tony. I, I wasn't sure whether you'd uh, you know, had some kind of mishap along the way or, or maybe been abducted. I'll, I'll be honest. I was, I, was, I was grabbed by Section 31, but I can't talk about that. Obviously, it's... Of course, of course, it's, yeah. It's classified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, there would be a, a specific cigarette smoking person um, who would probably kill me if I uh, if I spoke about what happened. Um, that, that would be so, some yeah. kind of e-cigarette, presumably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the the, the vaping man, just now, wouldn't up. it? Yeah, yeah. It'd <laughs> yeah. be the vaping man. It just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It doesn't. Uh, no. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been um, it's been a nice uh, vacation, but uh, I'm back now for hopefully a uh, nice run of episodes, uh, and we've got some good ones coming up. And this one, I suppose, it's not just uh, episode timed for Halloween. We're not we're not going full spooky, but in a way, I suppose we're touching on uh, elements in this episode which uh, very much tap into a uh, a spooky subject matter because um, we're talking about the X Files, aren't we, Duncan? today we are we are yeah <laughs> something that i think i think it's fair to say you know quite a lot about uh, and i know uh, you know a certain amount about but some of it uh, a few decades out of date probably <laughs> yes uh w- just to preface this we are going to talk about star trek as well guys okay i promise this isn't i haven't hijacked this and made this into my own personal podcast uh, which if uh, those of you don't know i do a podcast called the x cast an x files podcast which uh, has been going a couple of years now and is all about The X-Files, which was the uh, 1990s TV series all about uh, two intrepid FBI agents called uh, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, which starred David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, which is one of those TV shows like Star Trek that I think everybody has pretty much heard of, haven't they? I'd say that's a a fair bet, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I was thinking about this. Funnily enough, I think uh, Zachary and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago when you were away, about the fact that Mulder and Scully are, you know, became such kind of iconic characters. They almost um, managed to exist outside of the show that, that, that they were in, you know, a bit like Kirk and Spock or something, to the extent that you have in Deep Space Nine, in Trials and Tribulations, you know, you can have these characters who are called Dulmer and Luxley as a kind of Mulder and Scully gag. And it's they're sort of part of pop culture to that extent. Certainly they were at the time back in the 90s. But they, you know, unlike a lot of shows of that era, they've really persevered and survived, a bit like Star Trek. I mean, they haven't quite made it to 50 years, but, you know, however many... I do, I'm sure you know how many how many years on we are from when the X Files started, but there you know there are new ones coming out um, imminently, right? Well, next year in uh, January or February, we're not 100 percent sure when they're filming them right now. Ten new episodes, and it's next year is the 25th anniversary. So next September, it will be a quarter of a century old. So it's 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 approaching a bit. And you know, there's a lot of of conversation as to whether or not next season will be the final season but then they've been saying that for 15 years so you know you, you with the x-files you never you never know you never know it could still exist in some form you know in the future beyond next year but next year is a signature year for it and 
I think the reason that we're doing this, apart apart from you know trying to give my own podcast some uh, you know, outrageous <laughs> promotion, is also because there is a sort of connective tissue between these two shows. I think of the twentieth century, the late twentieth century, well, certainly when it comes to genre storytelling, I don't think certainly in American pop culture there have been two shows bigger in terms of reach and impact and kind of tapping into the zeitgeist of their age as either Star Trek in all its various forms or the X-Files. And what we wanted to do was talk about some of the connective tissue, you know, and and various different links between these shows, not just in terms of some of the storytelling and some of the influences and some of the, the cues that are taken, but also the fact that they do both represent, you know, you know, as I say, various different you know, elements of the age they were made in and reflecting a lot of the anxieties, you know, of the period. In the 60s, Star Trek was reflecting a lot of the anxieties post, post-World post War II and post the Cold War and during the Cold War and everything like that. Where And the X-Files, it kind of does similar in, in, in a much more darker, I suppose, realistic way, even though it's a show all about investigating the paranormal. But it does it in a in a different way. And I think what they both do is create a overarching framework and mythology within those shows which which make them last which mean that they are still around x-files has been around 25 years star trek of course is 51 now so you know it's they they they're very durable and i think that's one of the reasons Absolutely. we wanted to discuss them today yeah it's crazy i mean when you say 25 years it's uh, suddenly it makes me think you know in star trek terms uh 25 years was the was around the time of the undiscovered country i think wasn't it wasn't that the 20 and they had all that kind of 25th anniversary celebrations i mean i i was uh i'm trying to think whether i was i don't think i was quite in star trek then i i more remember the 30th as the big anniversary but you you know to think about the you, you know from the debut of the original series to the undiscovered country that length of time it's kind of i don't know i find that hard to get my head around like in my brain that seems like a you know a huge decade spanning era of history whereas you know uh, my memories of watching the x-files as a kid um you know to now it doesn't i don't know something doesn't compute there it's it's kind of it's, it's hard to imagine but i mean same thing it's hard to imagine with star trek to be honest that you know that that was the midway point and you know to us who grew up on you know next gen ds9 voyager and so on that kind of generation of star trek fans I suppose it's one of the things that comes up when we watch Discovery, for example, at the moment, is sort of to recognise how old those shows that we love are. And in some ways, it's, you know, especially like with The Next Generation, we've had the remasters and everything looks very crisp and new and, and perfect. The X-Files as well. I mean, I've been re-watching recently um, on, the, on um, Amazon and they have the, I think they're, the, they're the, basically the, the HD you know, the sort of HD versions. And again, it looks fantastic. You know, these old 90s shows don't, you know, they don't show their age necessarily when they've been remastered in this way and so on. And also, of course, we've got the kind of benefit of nostalgia. But I suppose it's 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 hard to get your head around as you grow older, that kind of sense of, of you know, for me, people who'd grown up watching the original series as kids and then were watching the, you know, tail end of the original series movies in the next generation, that seemed like a you know, a huge period of time. Whereas that's kind of what we're talking about. And I guess that's something that maybe we have to bear in mind in some ways that this period that we're talking about is sort of, is the middle of Star Trek and obviously the beginning of the X-Files. Well, it is equivalent. There is an equivalence in that, you know, there will be people still around now who are, you know, who watch Star Trek, you know, people in their old age who watch Star Trek when they were, you know, in the late middle age who watch Star Trek at the very beginning, you know, and they were there in 1991 when The Undiscovered Country premiered and it was the end of an era. You know, it was literally the end of an era in terms of the fact that that was the last movie with the original crew. And then then it was it was the age of the 90s TV shows and then the 90s movies and things like that. And The X-Files is sort of in a similar position now because both David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson are middle-aged. They are very much coming towards the end of playing these two iconic characters. And... You know, especially Gillian Anderson, who has, who has stated publicly that she doesn't intend to necessarily come back as Scully after this latest run. So, and you know, there's, there's, the X Files has become very interesting in the fact, and I suppose you could say the same about original Star Trek, in that the characters outgrew the concept in the sense of when it was first created, there was an idea about two agents investigating paranormal events, aliens, you know, monsters, all this kind of thing. But within, in very short order, because of their chemistry together, because of the 
the way these characters were written and portrayed, the show became about them to millions of fans as opposed to the actual stories. And when, you know, without going into too much detail, when the X-Files did try and evolve past Mulder and Scully, as it did during its 10-year run originally, nearly 10 years, people didn't want to know. And it, and it was one of the reasons why it was cancelled, because in the end, trying to integrate new agents, new characters, and use the same format was rejected by millions of people because it wasn't Mulder and Scully. So much like in the old days when Next Generation first premiered and Deep Space Nine, you know, as, 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 is, probably, as is to a degree happening with Discovery now, there is always a reticence to, to, to accept new people in something you love. And that's why... I think the X-Files ultimately will either be rebooted or it will be, you know, there will be, there will be a, a sequel series down the line which may well feature an older Duchovny and older Anderson in, you know, re, you know, a bit like Han Solo and Princess Leia in the Star Wars films in much more of a relegated, reduced role with a new generation coming up. I think it has that overarching concept like Star Trek does that will mean it continues on. And I think the halfway point, the 25-year point as we're approaching is going to be the, yeah, the end of the beginning. I think you summed it up quite well there, really. The end of the beginning mm. for the X-Files. That's interesting. I mean, I, I find it hard to... I have to say, I stopped watching the X-Files before uh, they started bringing in those other agents. And I haven't... Although I've been re-watching some of the early seasons uh, recently, I kind of, you know, haven't got to that point yet. I mean, I I wonder whether that is a real difference with Star Trek, in a sense, in that... Yes, there were all those fans who said, you know, it's not Star Trek if it's not Kirk, Spock and McCoy. But ultimately, they were proved wrong. Whereas from what you're saying, that that in the X-Files case, they were proved right, in a sense, in that, it, you know, they tried it and it, it didn't work. Um, and I certainly find it hard to imagine. I mean, I, partly, I think, because so much of Mulder and Scully, in some ways, like Kirk, Spock and McCoy, they have that quality of their... They're not just, I mean, they are they are interesting characters as, as sort of human beings, but they're also quite kind of archetypal. You know, you've got with the X-Files, you've got this very strong setup right from the beginning of Mulder is the believer and Scully's the skeptic. And so they approach, every time there's a mystery, they'll approach it from these two different perspectives. You know, he's doing research into the occult and sort of ancient texts on this. And, you know, well, there are these anecdotal stories about Blah. She's doing autopsies and science. And it's basically very much kind of, you know, belief versus science. Um, and one of the great sort of charms of that show, I think, and, it, and it, it it does get modulated to some extent because as it goes on, there, there are some things that she's sort of, she can't quite remain as sceptical as she was at the beginning uh, without it becoming quite ridiculous, you know, because she has seen a certain amount. But I think that idea of, of presenting these two worldviews, I suppose, as ways of interpreting everything that happens is part of the the key to its success and that has to be embodied in those two characters and it's something that you also see i think in some ways um feeding in a little bit in some of the 90s star trek series i mean in deep space nine for example we we quite and in voyager as well we quite often get these situations if you think about um i don't know say bajoran prophecies or something like that they'll often be a setup where there's two ways of interpreting the same situation through a kind of religious lens or through a kind of secular scientific lens and really the kind of ideal way of doing that story is to not ultimately decide you know one way or the other in the way that i think say sort of previous star trek you know original series next generation would have taken a very kind of uh, very much taken that line of the kind of rational scientific and rejected the kind of religious interpretation. Whereas as you go forward into Deep Space Nine and to some extent in Voyager as well, you know, you get this idea that these two interpretations can kind of sit side by, side by side and there's some kind of pleasure in the ambiguity of not resolving that conflict. Well, I think I think there's there's two different connectives really with, with the X-Files and Star Trek. I think on the, on the, on the one hand, there is the, the fact that Plenty of 90s Star Trek or various points in 90s Star Trek were influenced by the power of the X-Files at that time. But before that, I think it's fair to say that Star- um, the X-Files, to some extent, was, was was tapping into elements that Star Trek had either done or was, was having, if not a direct link, but a certain you know cue to that. I mean, one of the big things to remember is that both of these shows both share quite unique creators in the sense that Gene Roddenberry and Chris Carter, who created the X-Files, both are responsible for these two massive pieces of pop culture. They're not just they're not just showrunners. And this this is this is the big difference. You know, you get a lot of TV shows out there where 
you have a showrunner, and it's you know it can be a hugely successful successful show, like I don't know something like uh, Supernatural, for instance, or you know a show that's been running for ten, fifteen years, something that's done really, really well, and it's it's the kind of show that that as a, as a showrunner that's going to have done well and is going to be remembered. But with something like Star Trek and the X Files, they transcended the mediums they were on. They didn't just evolve into movies. They didn't just evolve into you know long running TV shows. They 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 became part of the lexicon. You know, the phrases that you used in the TV shows became part of modern day culture. You know, mm. in Star Trek, you've got things like live and let uh, live and let die, live and let die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting my long running friend. I missed, well I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> live, live, live long, live and, long prosper, and prosper, obviously, which is you know all yeah. said a lot a lot of the time. You know, a, a lot a lot of the um, you know phrases just being used. When in the X Files, you've got things like the truth is out there, you know, which is the slogan that comes up every episode, you know, in the credits. The fact that trust no one entered popular culture, you know, and these aren't necessarily things that Mulder and Scully say to each other all the time, but they're sort of taglines of the TV show that became part of how people consider the 90s and how people consider television. And Gene Roddenberry and Chris Carter both created something that evolved beyond them and they became showrunners who were very much pop culture stewards in many in many senses, to the point as well that most people who speak about Roddenberry and Carter will will not say that they are necessarily the greatest creative forces on their TV shows or on their franchises. For things like The Next Generation, people would point to Michael Piller as being probably the guy who made that show what it was. People would point to Iris Stephen Bear as I know Roddenberry had died by the time of Deep Space Nine, but you know people like that. And in in the X Files, people point to people like. Vince Gilligan or Frank Spotnitz or Darren Morgan as people who helped make the show the success it was. So I find it really interesting that Roddenberry and Carter both share that level of being showrunners that are bigger in some ways and created something bigger than a simple TV show and a simple concept. Definitely. I mean, yeah, it's interesting as well that you were saying about like these... um sort of slogans almost these these kind of things that enter the lexicon i suppose they maybe that is because they tap into something i mean particularly with the x-files those you know the truth is out there and trust no one i mean i guess one of the other elements that the x-files and star trek have in common from a kind of 90s perspective is exactly that kind of trust no one attitude that kind of skepticism that kind of you know that you see in deep space nine you see with the formation of section 31 you see i mean you know look at discovery discovery is is uh, you know whether or not discovery involves section 31 or not it's seeped in that kind of uncertainty mistrust of authority uh you know not knowing quite what's going on that the kind of atmosphere of it is certainly very much in line with with that kind of thing or, or you know in line with the x-files where there always seems to be some kind of agenda and there's people behind the scenes kind of uh pulling the strings and you're not quite sure you know who to trust or whatever and i think certainly that seeped into you know, some of the kind of Deep Space Nine storytelling, uh, you know, even into Enterprise and the JJ-verse and so on as well, couldn't help but be quite influential, I think. Um, And it's interesting. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on why with the X-Files, you know, why that kind of mindset or that kind of approach was so popular at that time, kind of in the early sort of mid-90s and then waned. And, you know, what is it that's brought it back? I mean, is it just nostalgia or is there some kind of you know, did that show capture some kind of zeitgeist that is ripe for retelling in some way, that those kind of concerns have come back to us one way or another? Well, I I definitely think they have. I think there's been a lot written about this, and there's a lot of um, really interesting theory. I'd point anyone to uh, a book that's just come out by uh, a friend of mine, Darren Mooney, who does a lot of the the X-Cast episodes with me, a brilliant writer, and it's called Opening the X-Files. And it goes into a lot of this subject matter really, really interestingly about a lot of the the pop culture and historical touchstones for the X-Files and one of the big you know ideas behind why the X-Files maybe tapped into a certain zeitgeist in the 90s was that the cold war had ended you know it's this idea that it was the the sort of decade between history almost the 90s there's a better there's a more poetic way of putting it but the idea of the cold war had ended we we'd yet to unfortunately encounter 9/11 and the modern day terrorism and the 90s sort of sat in that strange bracket in, in a way that the 60s did as well. And I think that's why it, it's funny how certain decades sort of tap into a certain really hit home with the, a specific zeitgeist. With Star Trek and the 60s, the 60s was a, a very intentionally colourful decade on television, in movies. 
you know, in re- in real life with the hippie movement and you know all the kind of stuff that was parodied in things like Austin Powers later on. That that you know counterculture revolutionary idea of creating something that was very much everyone thinking about the you know the prospect of the future and oh yeah we're going to achieve something and Star Trek was all about Roddenberry bringing this idea of trying to look beyond all the horrible stuff that he'd witnessed and we'd seen in the war and all this kind of stuff and learning from our mistakes and trying to hope for a better future and explore and all this kind of thing you know and Star Trek does that in its very sort of 60s kind of way but then by the time the 90s have come around you've had things like Watergate the Watergate uh, which is a massive influence on Chris Carter you've had things like the, the Vietnam you've got, you've had a, a 70s which has pretty much destroyed the American dream in the minds of the of their people plus the fact the rise of capitalism in the 80s, Reagan, all of this kind of build back into, you know, conspiracy theories that have been around and popularised in B-movies in the 40s and 50s after things like the Roswell crash, which plays a big part of the um, Into the X-Files. You know, the idea that a UFO in the real world, world crashed in, in Roswell, New Mexico, and they covered it up and said it was a weather balloon and that they've had aliens in secret bases in Area 51 and all these places in America, all this UFO culture and all this UFO lore that built up in the the 50s and the 60s and led into all kinds of areas with people claiming they were abducted by aliens and all kinds of stuff that, that grew around in the 60s and then and then was popularised back in the 90s when it felt like people were starting to distrust government. People were starting to lose faith. Ironically, during a government where it was, it was a democratic government, you know, they, it was Bill Clinton's era. And to some extent, the, the, the biggest challenge he faced was an indiscretion under his desk, you know, in some respects, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> yeah. so it's almost like because the world didn't have a quote-unquote villain, pop culture sort of found one. And uh, and I think one of the reasons that the X-Files really touched a nerve, and he's now touching a nerve again with the fact that we have the rise of the alt-right, we have Trump, we have, you know, all of these anxieties about where we're going, this horrible creeping fear that we may be racing towards some kind of dystopia some kind of big brother enormously terrifying surveilled future where everything we do is coded recorded and you know quantified which is exactly what the x-files talks about the idea that this maybe is happening now even more so is why i think the show is 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 back and why it had record viewing figures like a year and a half ago when it came out it's it's interesting i mean when you talk about i mean i think there's a kind of one thing that the X-Files certainly has in common with some of that 90s Star Trek, I mean, particularly, to be honest, Voyager as much as Deep Space Nine, or perhaps even more so, is this kind of preoccupation with the Second World War, a certain kind of reading of the Second World War, not the kind of heroism of the Second World War, not the kind of saving the world of the Second World War, but the kind of more uncomfortable elements of it. And, you know, the X-Files is, seems to be sort of obsessed with this idea of a kind of a, a, a sort of guilty conscience almost being kind of handed down and these kind of there's all these older characters i mean it, it's kind of interesting you were saying you know Mulder and Scully being middle-aged now or whatever and you know the extent to which that's changed but in the 90s you know they're the kind of younger characters they're the sort of younger generation finding out about these kind of indiscretions of the the older generation you know around the time of the war and the Cold War as well, I suppose. But um, and in Voyager, you see, you know, we we talk. I mean, our very first episode, we talked about Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is a character who crops up, uh, it, you know, is mentioned in various X Files episodes, um, and is you know, there's a kind of a sort of touchstone there. I think there's um, Joseph Mengele. I mean, w- you know, we might do an episode at some point about the Voyager episode, Nothing Human, which is basically a version of this real question of kind of the the ethics of the of the not so much the previous generation but it's so tied into that kind of world war ii period and you get that in the x-files you know relentlessly with this idea you know there's this episodes about um operation paperclip bringing in german scientists and getting them to to work in america there's the the japanese um experiments there's a there's a two-parter about that as well isn't there and you know and they were again very much in that kind of Mengele mould of kind of experimenting on you know living subjects doing horrific things and just this whole you know even aside from that kind of historical element there's all this stuff about you know combining human and alien DNA and performing weird experiments on people and kind of eugenics and genetics and you know cloning or or other kind of sort of non non naturally non non biologically natural forms of reproduction if you know what i mean like all that kind of stuff that it, it just seems to be sort of obsessed with those issues and i think a lot of those things are also things that come up you know in star trek and that seem to 
be very much of that time somehow and, and sort of concerns of that time. I don't know if it's partly to do with, you know, in the 90s, I mean, say in 1995 was the 50th anniversary, the end of the Second World War. So, you know, maybe there's a kind of preoccupation to do with that. Actually, I think my understanding is that Joseph Mengele did not discover anything that, that is particularly useful from a medical point of view. But I think some of those Japanese experiments possibly did. Uh, and actually some of those kind of moral areas you know, maybe have a little bit more of, of a tie to that. Yeah, it, the X-Files is all about that, really. It's all about sins of the fathers, you know, and, and that kind of re- fear of repeating history, which so many TV shows that have complex mythologies, which is something that fascinates me, and I, I intend to write more about, really, the idea that so many shows, it's about the fear of repeating history, about cycles, about you know, mistakes being made about the, the, the spectre of the past not being able to be quite escaped. And it's it's really interesting when you think about the fact that in the real world, you know, because the X-Files takes a cue from a lot of the real world stuff. You know, you mentioned things like Operation Paperclip. You know, these things were real. You know, they, they did actually bring over Axis scientists to, to help win the space race. You know, this, this is documented fact that they've quite often apologised for since, since. You know, and this was, this was happening in the, in the age Star Trek was being made. You know, this was this was the run up to 1969. You know, Apollo moon landings and things like that. These people were in the states doing this kind of scientific work at the time that Gene Roddenberry was making a show that was all about humans, united humans, going out there and you know and discovering new worlds. So it's there's, there's this real sort of American layer of guilt rippling underneath. You know, everything, the society, and that that sense that there's something that needs to be apologised for, and that comes up quite key in in the episodes about Japanese um, scientists uh, in the third season, the the idea that the president apologised for secret tests. And Mulder says at one point, he says, I I, I don't care about the lies. You know, he says, I want want an apology for the truth. And and that's a great line, and it's it's the last line in the episode, and and it just sums everything up, really, in that it is about it is about guilt and it is about that that fear of repeating history and and the fact that these the crimes of these old men and and are things that will and the, the X-Files is one of those shows that has no justice you know <laughs> there is there, there these people are never really going to be brought to account because it was all done so secretly it was all done so under the radar it was all you know so covert and that's why it is interesting when these things start to creep into 90s star trek you know things as we mentioned section 31 which is an idea I imagine would have that would have had Roddenberry spinning in his already quite you know uh, <laughs> propulsive grave, <laughs> given given a lot of all the things that came after he died that he would have no doubt disagreed with, you know, even beyond you know Roddenberry's box and abandoning Roddenberry's box. But I'm sure he would have had a deep, deep issues with almost everything in Deep Space Nine. So when Section Thirty One comes along and there's this, there's this, there's been this essentially a you know covert you know, dark espionage unit at the very heart of the Federation forever. It's, it, that's not a Roddenberry idea. That's a Chris Carter one. It is, absolutely. And I mean, I, I had a, a bit of a problem with Section 31 for a long time, to be honest. I mean, when I watched Deep Space Nine in its first run, I didn't have a problem with the other sort of darker aspects of that series. I didn't have a problem with the war stuff or so on. I did have a bit of a problem with Section 31 because I did feel like it was a bit of a... It was very much not Star Trek. And I found it hard to believe that this organisation had been kind of hiding away all those years but it is very much that same it's interesting you know thinking about the cigarette smoking man it's very much the same attitude it's basically this idea of you know we know better than you do what's best for you and we're going to kind of secretly uh manipulate things so that you can go on believing your kind of reassuring fantasies about you know in star trek's case living in a kind of egalitarian utopia uh, in the x-files case kind of living in a, a modern 20th century democracy uh but actually we're the we're the ones with the courage to do the right thing i mean you you see this in the x-files a lot these men who are it's they're not doing it for personal gain you you know they're actually they've sacrificed quite they're kind of villains in a sense of sacrificed a lot for something that they really believe in they really believe that they're kind of you know, they're doing the right thing, that these people are kind of like children almost, like fools who kind of have to have the tough decisions made for them in a sense because because of that whole thing of guilt, because they won't be able to shoulder the guilt of kind of making the necessary decisions. That's the kind of... And that's very much what you get from Section 31 is this kind of 
attitude of kind of superiority of like, well, yeah, you, you might have a problem with this morally, but I'm the one who's going to get the job done. We're the ones who are going to save the day. And I mean, I do, one of my kind of reservations about it is I do think in Star Trek that it it often, as much as they're seen as antagonists and kind of villainous and, and problematic, there is often a sort of question around, you know, well, they they are effective to a certain extent. Do you know what I mean? And and I don't know. I think I think it's it's it. I can understand. I, I'm not as wild about Section Thirty One as a lot of people are. I think a lot of people think, oh, Section Thirty One's really cool. I mean, like you know, they decided to bring them into Enterprise. They decided to bring them into JJ Verse, etc. A lot of people, I think, would like Discovery to be a Section Thirty One ship, whatever that means. I mean, to me, that's a bit of a, of a mis- contradiction in yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it just like I'd. I don't think there's anything cool about that. I don't really mind it as a as a storytelling thing. I quite liked the sort of Bashir going undercover element of it and that sort of thing. But it worries me slightly that this is going to sound very sort of po-faced and like, like I'm sitting here in Roddenberry's box. But on there's, this there's show, something about the kind of relish <laughs> for it that I that I yeah I know that I find slightly <laughs> alarming. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like and actually in Discovery, it's interesting. Like, I think about the black badges. I mean, uh, we, we don't know what the answer is with the black badges or what's going on, but it's that kind of. We talked about it. I suppose it's connected to you know we did that episode on the Nazis and so on, and I was talking a bit about Nazi uniforms and how there's this kind of fetishization of that kind of evil style. And I think with you know Section Thirty One, they're all in black leather and so on. There's there's something of the same kind of aesthetic and the same kind of idea of. of there's something cool about them. I prefer the, to be honest, I prefer the X-Files version where, you know, cigarette smoking man is, he's very powerful, but he's a bit of a, he's quite a sad, he's quite a tragic character in some ways. You know, there's that episode where he's trying to write his novel and everything. And he's, you know, and he's obviously got this debilitating smoking habit and so on. He's, he's not a guy with much of a life or much of there's something tragic about that. There, there is. And if there's, if there's a connective between the smoking man and Star Trek, it's absolutely Ducat because they are essentially very similar in that it's that idea of a, of a guy who is, is the villain, but he does consider himself the hero. He considers himself doing things for a greater good, for a, for a bigger purpose. He does have family members who he's trying to protect and look out for. You know, he's got this twisted idea of who he is and what he's doing. You know, in the smoking man's case... It's that he's a, he's attempting to you know ally himself with a, a an all powerful you know the, the suggestion is divine godlike alien species that are, that are going to colonize and destroy the earth and wipe out humanity, but he's going to do it and he's going to save himself and his family and certain amounts of people, and that's kind of at the heart of the X Files mythology. And I think the difference between that and Section Thirty One is that Section Thirty One is reflective of an age where I don't think people certainly the writers of Deep Space Nine, I don't think they quite believed that the Federation and that utopian world could exist. In the 60s, I think there was a lot more optimism that we could have got there, that we'd had these terrible wars, all these people had died, and that maybe we were going to learn from our mistakes and maybe we could shoot for something a bit more optimistic. And we and, and then and then all these things I talked about earlier came and all, all these all these really you know destructive elements like Nixon Nixon's resignation, this complete breakdown of, of belief in the system. So I think by the time you get to the 90s and you get to episodes like Inquisition, you have the writers struggling with the idea that you could have a utopian system like like the the future Federation world exist without something like Section 31. Because, you know, in Inquisition, he says it, doesn't he? Bashir, you know, Odo says, well, I'm surprised this, this, has, this hasn't happened before. I'm surprised you don't know about this because the Romulans have got the Tal Shiar and the Cardassians had the Ascidian Order. You know, what do you expect? You're a, you're a, you're a massive organisation the only way to survive in a world where you do have people out to assassinate, you do have terrorist plots, you do have, you know, alien races trying to destroy you, is to have a unit that can do the dirty work because the dirty work is going to get done. And and that's what I think has crept into Star Trek over the last, you know, well, since, since the 90s, definitely, and since the influence of things like the X-Files, this idea that Roddenberry's idea of a utopia just isn't viable. And that's why you have things like Section 31, you have characters like Admiral Marcus, you know, in Star Trek Into Darkness. You have characters like Admiral Doherty in Insurrection, who's another example of sort of a kind of corrupt internal Federation influence who believes he's doing something for the greater good, but in fact he's conspiring and plotting against the very ideals of, of the Federation. And that's why Picard makes a, makes a point and stands up and says, I'm going to protect the Baku because 
this is not what we are. And that's why Bashir says, well, surely this goes against, you know, the the, the very principles of, of, aren't we better than this? Aren't we striving for something better? And I think a lot of the writers are like, I don't know if we are. <laughs> I really don't know if we ever can be. And that's, I think, where this anxietal factor has crept into Star Trek. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I suppose you're right. It's it's there in, you know, say, in the pale moonlight, that kind of, you know, the idea that, that someone might be push to do something that that they're morally don't agree with i mean well you know look at discovery i mean you talk about those admirals i mean first of all we've got captain Lorca, who's very much in that kind of mold i mean you know seems to obviously we don't really know at this stage exactly where that's going but seems to be at the very least even as he may be partly a sympathetic character he's quite a dangerous character because he's not playing by the rules but even in the first episode you know we had michael burnham the whole event that kicked off the whole thing very much taking you know doing what section 31 would have would have done essentially isn't she do you know what i mean she's making that decision and quite an extraordinary kicking off point for that character in some ways not doing the starfleet thing not doing what we expect you know um her captain is is playing by the rule book that we're kind of familiar with and she's literally the pretty much the first thing that we see her do is chuck that out the window and do you know do what Sloan or you, you know or, or one of these kind of characters would would have them do doing the thing that is is not really morally acceptable but is a kind of you know a, a calculation of the, that the ends are going to justify the means doing something that is is kind of wrong in the short term for a greater gain and to some extent that is a dilemma that's kind of run through Star Trek for a long time but it it is also that I, that idea of kind of moral compromise, I suppose, that we see, you know, we see with Cisco, we see with Archer, certainly in Enterprise, you know, the kind of trauma that he goes through having compromised his own morals and so on. And, and we're seeing again, I guess, with Michael Burnham in some ways of, you know, having this, this sense of guilt. And I mean, in some ways in Discovery so far, I think it's not really, you know, this whole thing of her being, I mean, yes, yes, she, you know, she, she did commit mutiny and so on, but people are representing it as if she's solely responsible for this war that would otherwise not have happened. And that doesn't seem to me like a very accurate uh, description of what we've seen on screen. But at the same time, it does tie into this idea of this kind of guilt associated with her actions and exactly that kind of idea of, you know, if you overstep the mark, are you going to have to kind of live with that? What Cisco says in In the Pale Moonlight, I think I can live with it. I think I can live with it. And the open question of that episode is kind of, can he or can not? He? Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's in that performance. It's in the way it's written. It's kind of, yeah, he's saying he can, but at the same time, we don't really believe him. You know? And, and I, I think what, well, what Discovery seems to be doing, you know, and, and as, as we record this, they're about six episodes in. I haven't actually seen uh, the sixth episode yet. But I think what Discovery's doing is obviously, you know, in, in the vein of, of typical Star Trek, it's taking the, the allegory of, 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 of an age where people... Are, are, you know the Klingons have kind of been reconceptualized as sort of you know zealots in the in the form of you know considering ISIS and all of these kind of things to reflect the kind of times really. But I think what Discovery is trying to do is is make is create a Starfleet and create a point in 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 the Star Trek timeline where that level of idealism that was in Enterprise has kind of lost a bit of the shine and they've they've reached a point where based on things that, you know, kind of like Archer and that lot went through, you know, the Zindi, and then you would have had the Romulan Wars after that, which we haven't actually seen on screen, sadly. But you've had a lot of things happen since the launch of the NX-01, and, and that, that you know, original adventure that I think have kind of made them get to a point, Starfleet, where it's a little bit more complicated. It's a bit greyer. They're willing to maybe go to darker places and do darker things, which could explain why the Discovery exists in the first place and the, and the quite shady mission they seem to be on. And I think what, what I hope in a way from Discovery and, and where I think it will potentially sort of fit the, the time that it's been made in is that it could end up getting to a point by the end where it starts to make us believe the world that, that the original series existed in could, could exist and that they reach a little bit more of a point of hope, having come through the Klingon conflict, having come through this this quite morally questionable idea, you, you know, that Lorca and these admirals that he's dealing with are saying, do what it takes, do whatever it takes to win this war, which doesn't feel like a Starfleet maxim. It doesn't feel, it feels like the kind of thing they started to do a little bit in the Dominion War when things got a bit desperate, but it never felt like it went that far. You know, with with Cisco, he compromised his ethics and everything in, in the Pale Moonlight, but it was done very covertly. I don't ever remember people like Admiral Ross turning around to him and saying, you know, go and effectively be a rogue 
guy with your own ship in the same way as Lorca seems to be. Lorca's been given quite a kind of long leash, I think. Although, I mean, in in the sixth episode, it's there's this kind of it seems like they're kind of trying to rein him in a bit. But you're right, definitely. And, and Cisco could only do that because of his kind of shady contacts. Do you know what I mean? Because he's got people like Garrick and Quark around who can. You know, can, can do that kind of non very unstarfleety stuff. He can because he's in Deep Space Nine. He's he's not on a Federation starship. He can get that stuff done. He wouldn't have been able to do that on the Enterprise, even if he'd wanted to. You know, he wouldn't have had the kind of the resources in a sense, the kind of underworld connections uh, that are, are needed for that kind of thing. But but yeah, I think I think you're right. Definitely. I mean, it's 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 sort of an interesting question in Discovery because I think we haven't seen enough of. The, the higher level we've seen a little bit of these kind of conversations with these admirals and so on and you know the the sixth episode that we've just had uh broadcast this week is is certainly interesting in that respect because um you, you know a lot of it is concerned with this question of whether he's fit to command the ship basically whether he's you, you know to the extent to which he's not following orders he's kind of making his own decisions he's kind of running his own very much going going off on his own thing and you know feeling like he knows what's best and, and not doing what he's told but i don't know it's 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 hard it's always hard to say i, th- I think one of the things is because the the level of the, the sort of admirals and the command and so on is always a little bit obscure you know you have like an admiral who turns up and if you have say an insurrection the admiral is a, a bad admiral is a kind of dodgy one you're never quite sure how many of them are dodgy you know is the whole sort of setup of starfleet command corrupt we, we don't generally think it is it seems like there are kind of one or two bad ones in there you know in the undiscovered country we had admiral cartwright didn't we who, who turns out to be you, you know kind of duplicitous but they're not um they seem to turn a blind institutionally eye corrupt they yeah maybe they do maybe they do I they, don't know. you know it, it's things like you know they when in at the end of um uh, inquisition when they say what did starfleet say about section 31 he says well you know they, they didn't deny it you know, they didn't confirm it, but they didn't really deny it either. They just said, we'll, we'll look into it, which means they know full well. That would be the same kind of response you would get from a government department in the X-Files when Mulder tries to make a, an inquiry about a crash site or a UFO thing. You'd just get a reply saying, you know, we'll look into it. Or, you know, that, that kind of, kind of institutionalised, don't worry about it, you know. And, and <laughs> there's that, there is that little element with Starfleet to a degree that... They do sacrifice some of these principles, and some of them know they have to do that. And there is that that level of that level of chain of command knowledge, which I suppose, in a way, sort of parallels the kind of dark syndicate level, but on a, on a, on a different manner. You get in the X Files that sort of level of knowledge that, in order to keep the world ticking over in the way that they want the Federation, they want Starfleet, they want them to believe, they want them to strive for these goals. That certain people maybe have to know and do things that are against the very sort of ethics and morals that the whole thing is built on you know and that if you if you if you expose that then down tumbles the house of cards in a way and i and i think that's a fascinating idea that star trek doesn't always focus on but it's sort of rippling there in the background in a lot of these stories and it has been since since the 90s really especially the late 90s at the end of deep space 9 and in films like insurrection onwards into Enterprise, when these these darker ideas started to popularise more. Because before then, it wasn't quite as there. You know, like you said, you mentioned Trials and Tribulations, which was a little bit of an X-Files spoof with the temporal investigators. And then you also had episodes like Little Green Men, which was a, 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 fun, a lovely little knockabout romp with Quark and Nog and Rom being the Roswell aliens. But it's played purely for comedy. It's, it's extremely light relief. It taps into all the X-Files kind of tropes. You know, the cigar-chomping general in the 40s who goes, oh, it was just a weather balloon, you know, and all these kind of things. <laughs> but it's it's done to light effect, much like um, the original series does with UFO sightings and UFO culture. You know, it does it with um, Tomorrow is Yesterday, which is a really knockabout episode where they end up getting thrown back to, you know, 1967 or whatever it is, and they take on a US Air Force pilot, and it becomes a bit of a romp in some respects. When if if you look beyond it, there is a, sort of a darker subtext in the sense that they're actually throughout that entire episode they they feel like alien abduct, abductors. The, these human future humans actually are doing all the different things that aliens would do with in the alien mythology law of abducting human beings. You know, they do experiments on him. They talk about wiping his memory. They talk about the fact he may never be able to go home again. 
you know, they they do all of these things. You've got you've got the the devil iconography with Spock and his ears and all this, and it's played for comedy effect, but it's it is there, and it, and it's only really when you get towards the late nineties when they start to an- angle in the conspiracy levels to it, and it becomes a bit more of a rippling sinister idea in Star Trek. Although I suppose that's sort of there as well in the Undiscovered Country, but that feels more like a it feels a bit different in that one. I wonder also whether, I mean, thinking about insurrection, whether one of the things that doesn't work about insurrection is that I always sort of felt like one of the flaws of insurrection is this central kind of issue about, um, you know, is it right or wrong to move the Baku and so on? And Picard makes this impassioned speech. But somehow, I, I mean, I, I remember sort of thinking at the time of watching it that his his speech doesn't quite land the way you'd expect it to you know and it's Patrick Stewart and he's great and and it, it kind of feels almost like it's that scene is trying to recreate the kind of drama of the scene in First Contact where he gets angry and smashes the ships and so on it's this kind of one-on-one confrontation something about it and I don't know I wonder if it is that kind of you know uh whatever it would be sort of late 90s by that point era that kind of post-X-Files era that have we become more cynical by that point? I mean, Deep Space Nine throughout that period of time was showing us, you know, sometimes the ends do justify the means. Sometimes you do have to do morally questionable things. Sometimes there's a, you know, a, a, a you know, if your survival is at stake or whatever, or, you, you, you know, so, so basically a more kind of morally relative, murky, grey kind of world. And I think one of the things that feels slightly odd about insurrection is that it's such a kind of classic Roddenberry kind of position, such a kind of classic Star Trek position. You know, it does feel very much like a, a TNG episode, but also quite a sort of... It, it it feels quite out of date somehow at the time that it comes along. Um, doesn't feel like it's sort of moved with the times. So I wonder if that is connected to that idea of kind of mistrust and kind of the 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 greyness of all these things which is certainly something that we see in star trek kind of from that period going forward that it becomes harder somehow to buy into that argument um it's almost as much as we might want to i mean i th- I feel like that film is quite a difficult one because i sort of i want to like it more than i do somehow you know there are there are elements of it that I, that i that resonate with me but at the same time I like I like I say I find that scene surprisingly unpersuasive given that it's you know it's an argument that it's 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 proper Star Trek argument you've got Patrick Stewart making it and somehow it doesn't quite convince me I th- I, th- I think part of the the problem with insurrection generally is is elements of the script and elements of the production and and the fact that it, it it's a bit of a hodgepodge of a story but I think maybe also is the fact that it's sort of on the cusp of it's on the cusp of changing times. You know, that came out in 98, which was at the zenith, really, of the X-Files popularity. You know, 1998 was the year that the X-Files movie came out. But it was after that that the bubble started to burst, you know, and it's it's well documented that from that point on, the X-Files was on a steady decline, really, in terms of ratings, for many people in terms of quality. You know, it, in the middle of the sixth season, they wrapped up the central mythology, and then it sort of drifted for about a year and a half, and then they sort of tried to reinvent the show in the last two seasons with mixed results. But um, even though the season that they do try and reinvent things is a terrific year of television, but it then leads to a pretty poor final year, at which point it was 9-11 had happened. And that is well known as being the point where the X-Files didn't feel relevant anymore because people needed to tr- needed to trust in the government. They felt like they needed to believe that, these, that the government was going to help them because this terrifying new in inverted commas enemy had just crashed planes into the twin towers and it, the, a lot of television reflected the the idea that people would rally round a cause you know you had it in shows like 24 which was very much about you know the 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 bad guys the, the foreign bad guys being killed and in some respects it reflects it in enterprise because even though enterprise does have section 31 it does have some murky elements it does have those shades of gray you know, there is, there's no suggestion that there is corruption at the heart of what happened with the Zindi. You know, it's very much that the Federation, that Starfleet is fully behind Archer and his mission to go out there and kick some ass and, you know, make these people pay for what they've done. And it is a big, it is a big metaphor for 9-11. It is wounds, very fresh wounds. So Enterprise operates in a slightly different way in that I don't think you have quite that level of distrust about the system in Enterprise as you do in Deep Space Nine. And insurrection and whether or not it seeped into voyager i don't really know i don't i don't feel that show really did that kind of stuff but it, it's I, I think i think the times had started to change really 
Well, I think there's also a sort of question of, of almost bad taste uh, around these things, isn't there? I mean, there were conspiracy theories after 9-11, you know, there, and there are still today. You know, there are people who think that the whole thing was orchestrated by the US government or whatever. You know, exactly the kind of ideas that, that come into the X-Files. But I suppose we see this sometimes, you know, sometimes we see this with these, you know, mass shooting incidents or so on, that people will start... Uh, questioning things, people start saying that the victims aren't genuine, that they're actors or whatever. And, you know, as, aside from how improbable that might seem, you know, there's also an element of it seems tasteless and kind of uh, crass to make those suggestions when, you know, thousands of people have just been killed or whatever. And so I think in the kind of post 9-11 period, the people who were saying that, most people would react, you know, understandably, very with a great deal of hostility towards those kind of claims because they're. it's not just that they're unpatriotic, they kind of seem disrespectful almost. And you get that weirdly in the X-Files. I mean, I was quite struck by, in one of your early episodes from the X-Cast, you were talking about the episode Space, which is about, um, is set at NASA, basically. And along with Various other, but it's, I mean, it's this, you know, I don't need to tell you what a stupid episode it is, but yeah, it's terrible. You, you know, it has this weird kind of alien thing that's been messing with at NASA and so on. But it, one of the kind of throwaway lines is that they imply that this alien thing uh, caused the destruction of the Challenger. And you were saying, I think when you were discussing that episode, you know, that that sort of felt like it was a bit in bad taste. And I mean, you mentioned Chris Carter in the X-Files does often drop in kind of real world things to kind of tie the show into reality. But at the same time, when you're writing a kind of fantastical show, and in The X-Files, as dark and dramatic as it can be, it's also frequently pretty out there and and mad and slightly ridiculous. You know, that's part of its charm. Um, There is something... There is an element of bad taste about that if if, if you're talking about a real thing that's happened that has had awful uh, consequences for people... You know, if you say, oh, yeah, actually, it was caused by aliens or whatever, it, there is something slightly disrespectful about that, I think, to those people who've died. Do you know what I mean? And I think maybe that ties into, you know, it's not just that in the wake of 9-11 there was a, a sort of need to believe in something or whatever, or this kind of gung-ho attitude, which you certainly see in Enterprise, but also that somehow the very idea of mistrusting those in charge at that point becomes more dangerous or more kind of offensive or more kind of unbearable somehow you you know it, it it's it's just about possible to cope with the idea that some other group of people from some other country have come and killed all these people in this horrific sort of depraved act the idea that someone might have made a calculation in the government that it was worth doing that for some you know whatever the spurious reason is or whatever but you know i mean i the episode of the x-files i was just watching the there's this uh, a plane is brought down so you know how many hundred people are killed and Mulder is sort of saying you know that he thinks that the the government or whoever have brought it down because they had to you know one person on that plane had to not be allowed to to make it off the plane and therefore you know they were willing to to kill several hundred civilians in order to do that I mean it's that kind of thinking that is kind of abhorrent you know rightly and and I think when it ties into a real world event it's kind of it's very uncomfortable to go there as a kind of as a piece of entertainment I suppose and I wonder if that kind of slightly ties into some of those anxieties and and you know what you need to you need to believe in a very basic level of trust okay so yes Bill Clinton might have been uh you know getting up to no good beneath the desk or whatever but you kind of need to believe that he wasn't making those kind of judgments you know he wasn't section 31 he might be a you know mm. yeah <laughs> a bit of a flawed man in other ways but he he's not you know that level of kind of morally relative that he, yeah slash evil that he wasn't actively plotting against you in some respects you know exactly. he hasn't, yeah you know yes, and, and, exactly. and they'd yeah. had that with nixon you know they'd felt like they'd had that with nixon with you know a president who was impeached you know there's the and, and that's why a lot of people feel that about trump now i mean apart from the fact he's he's a, he's a very i'm putting this politely because we're on air but he's a very difficult individual to like there is a lot of suggestions that he's he's essentially not working in the best interests of the people, and his government aren't working in the best interests of the people, and a lot of people believe that right now, you know, and it's and it's that that existential fear that you cannot trust the upper echelons of government, and I th- I think there was a point where even with quite a right wing to an extent Republican government with with you know Bush and and the the Iraq War and all this and all, all the all the you know complexities that came out of that there was there was a period i think at the tail end of when star trek was last on tv and when the x-files was off air 
interestingly enough, apart from the second movie, which was 2007, that people did want to believe in their government. You know, um, they did want to believe in, in that. And you know, the, the other tagline of the X Files is I yeah. want to believe. And I think. <laughs> yeah. Mulder has always wanted to believe in aliens. You know, Scully has always, to an extent, wanted to believe in, in, in belief, in a way, and believe in God and believe in these things. But I think people have always wanted to believe that fundamentally they can trust and they can, they can know the truth about what's going on, that they can visualise and they can perceive the world around them. And The X-Files has always been about the idea that what you may perceive isn't what's really going on. There is a level of secret history. There is a level of untold truth rippling underneath and that's why i think it's back now and that's why i think in discovery you've got a very a very murky quite shady situation going on with you know um things that eventually will end up a little bit of you know underground star trek history you know there's no way that spore drive is going to is going to end up being a public knowledge thing by the end of this show it's too big an idea that's eventually going to have to be classified and hidden away otherwise it would have been in subsequent i know it wasn't invented when the previous shows were made, but in terms of continuity, there's no way they can explain that away. You know, so there there is going to end up being that level in in discovery, which again is reflective of the age. It's why the X Files is back. It's why again we don't trust what's going on around us, and it, and again it's it cycles. It's come back around again, and it seems to every every twenty years or so, it seems to come back around this cycle of something tapping into a zeitgeist, and I think. That's what, I mean, if anything, that could be that could be why Discovery is is very successful because if it manages to tell a really interesting story and gets the heart of Star Trek, but if it's also reflective of an age where you know we 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 don't we need to work towards believing again in a better future in the Starfleet future in the Federation future, then maybe that will be part of its success in that it will help us believe again. Well, I mean, you talk you you know talking about Trump aside from Trump as a person and as a president you know there's this whole question hanging over the election of you, you know was this a fair was this a fair election what level of meddling was they you know there's a foreign power that appears to have been at least attempting to kind of influence that election i mean you know if you in terms of like trusting authority trusting the kind of mechanisms of of democracy and of control and so on there's been a massive breakdown of trust in those things over that whole process, I think. Yeah, and, and it, it does go back to that whole idea of of fear that democracy is being eroded, that fear that the world we're living in is, is going to sustain itself, you know, and that every day it seems to be an, another another level of surveillance, another level of, you know, scaremongering, another, another level of corruption, you know, and it's building and building and building and building again. And I think that's, that's, when, that's when TV and that's when popular culture and movies can be at their best, and most important to to people because that's if they can highlight that and they can use allegory and storytelling like Star Trek does at its best to make you either be less afraid or make you aware of something or you know tap into that existential fear I think that's when it can be great and I think that's what Star Trek and the X-Files ultimately have in common I think that's that's what they can do in very different ways in very different kinds of storytelling styles they both are able to make you you know feel things make you understand things make you tap into concepts and ideas that are bigger than their individual shows and i think that's i think that's what they do really well in their different time eras when they exist well so it's it's been uh, it's been really fun drawing these these parallels between these two shows if if you want more x-files guys then uh, hop over to the xcast which is my own podcast because we're doing something called the xcast podwatch right now in the run up to um Season 11, which will premiere, as I say, in January, February time. We're, uh, we've got a podcast a day for the next three months, which is talking two episodes of The X-Files a day. There's like 207 episodes of The X-Files, loads of episodes. Um, and it's, it's based on from there, from there to here. That was where I got the idea from. And I can't claim it's as much of a, a workload effort as from there to... I'll tell you what, doing this, Duncan, I don't know how Chris and everybody involved did that. I, I, I mean, to do this has been hard enough. I don't know how they managed to do 700-odd episodes over a whole year. It's incredible. I, I think Mike, it might have nearly killed him. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the impression it was it was quite an ordeal. But, I mean, the X-Files has, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a few of them. It's definitely an undertaking. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really impressive. I, I've been listening to them every day. I'm really enjoying it. Um, and, I, you know, you inspired me just as, as from there to here inspired me to do my uh, sort of complete works Star Trek rewatch. Uh, you've inspired me to get back into the X-Files and, uh, 
you know, I've, I've sort of been, I've been plowing through. I've been trying to get a little bit ahead because I think, you know, keeping up with two episodes a day is tricky. But um, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really enjoying the, you know, the the shorter takes that, that we get on them. And, you know, there are some familiar voices from Trek FM uh, and indeed from, from there to here uh, over on the X-File on your pod watch as well. There's Brandon Shea Matala is over there and Zach Moore and you, of course, um, so it's definitely, I'd say, anyone with an interest in the X-Files. I mean, my interest in the X-Files, you know, I, I loved the X-Files in the 90s. But I, I don't know, I, I obviously tuned out at some point, I think a bit sort of after the time of that first movie. So for me, it's been, you know, quite a nostalgia trip, really going back and watching some of those old episodes again and, and remembering some of those things that really, you know, I'd sort of forgotten how big a fan I was of that show you know, for those few years, uh, I guess because it didn't, it's not something that I sort of took with me into adulthood, if you know what I mean. But it, it really, you know, it it made a massive impact on me as it did on many people at that time. Um, you, you know, it was it was quite unlike anything else that was out there. Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, at that time, I mean, it was the, I mean, it's my, given I do a podcast on it, it's pretty obvious, but it was my, it's my favourite tv show it's my favorite thing in the world really and it, uh, it's always stayed with me you, you can't say that on trek fm <laughs> um apart from star trek of course <laughs> thank you duncan yeah um that goes without saying come on um but <laughs> we won't make you we won't, we won't make you choose unlike no. sarek we're not we're not gonna oh, you, you haven't seen that episode yet Sorry, although, <laughs> <laughs> we won't make you choose between your although to be fair it was, loves. when i when i was little star trek was number one you know it was only when i right. got to teenage yeah. years and i discovered the x-files that, that slightly overtook it you know they they are almost and i'm not just saying this they are genuinely almost on a par really in terms of of the love of it which is why i podcast about both of them but no it's great that you're following you know along with it it'd be very interesting to see what you make of when you get to the episode you haven't really seen or you very saw very briefly yeah, yeah. towards the end i'll be very interested to know what you think about that as we get down there and you know, we'll, we'll be there soon Definitely. enough because these the we're already at the end of season one in terms of the pod watch already. It's only been like twelve days, so yeah. uh, and we've still yeah, got yeah. a bit of work to do. We're not quite finished with the editing and the recording, but we're um, but we're close. We're getting there. So it's it's been a lot of fun. So if you do want a bit more um, X Files, uh, do check over there. You can find us at the X underscore Cast on Twitter, um, on Facebook, and uh, you'll find all the links on there. And we're on iTunes, much like Trek FM is. So if you just type in the X Cast, you'll find us. But uh, for now, the trek is out there. There's the title. Very good. There you go. That's it. Um, <laughs> and of course, um, the X Files and how it links to Star Trek isn't the only thing that we've been talking about um, this week. Uh, so on on Trek FM. So let's have a little listen to what else has been going on across the network. Previously on Trek FM, literary treks. Yeah, you know, I I think I made. What little hints I gave in previous books about who had done it and why, I, I, I left sort of vague, but there were a couple of details that I had to hit because I'd seeded them in earlier novels. Meta Trex. Well, Jed Z is just going, geez, Fullerton, just have a little more Jamaha on, would you? <laughs> Lighten up. Although they did observe that they weren't sure that that would help, so... Fuller, Fullerton must really have been... He's too far gone. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's too far gone. The 602 Club. Yeah, so I actually was always a, a Netflix binger since Netflix started and saw it come up in the queue, but had not heard about it previously at all. It was like it suddenly snuck up on me. And I thought about watching it, but it took my sister telling me, have you seen this show Stranger Things? And I said, no, I haven't given it a chance yet. Why? What do you think? And she said, it will blow your mind. And I was like, okay, maybe I should watch it. <laughs> well, and and did it blow your mind? It did. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Earl Grey. Well, as you can probably tell from that opening, we're going to be talking about the origins of Star Trek Discovery in The Next Generation. Um, we wait, have a uh, lot of wait, good stuff. Phil that Philip, wait, I... I, I don't think we host this show anymore. Uh, Wait, what? I think we when we spore shifted, we actually ended up in Earl Grey. This isn't this isn't us anymore. I, I think we're just around. I think we just showed up here because, well, coincidentally, as it may be, this is two hundred episodes of Earl 200 Grey. Two hundred episodes. Oh my goodness. Two hundred episodes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all right.